first name? Ella. Ella. Remember Miss Ella Batten? This is Jennifer's grandmother, and she fell... Oh gosh. Okay, let's pray for uh, Miss Batten and the family as well. It's a very difficult time. Yeah, I, when Adam told me, I did not realize how serious it was at first. I mean, he told me that they're, yeah. Well, we'll be praying for. Um, also, remember. Um, I'm going to try to list a whole bunch of these. There were several new ones. Uh, Danny Bruton mentioned um, his mentor, Roger Harville, who's 83, and I have not asked for an update on him, but I think he said that they had already called in hospice. Um, so remember Roger Harville and that family as well. Those that have upcoming uh, surgeries, uh, we have several that um, are going through cancer treatments or have upcoming cancer uh, surgeries. Um, remember uh, Kenny Williams. Williamson, I'm having heart issues. Continue to pray for Whitecrest Baptist Church and uh, just the tough time that they've been through. That's not something that uh, is going to pass quickly. That tough seasons like that will leave a mark on you. So continue to remember them. And remember the Daryl Chapel family. This is uh, Carolyn Hussey's nephew. And uh, he passed away unexpectedly in a car accident. Um, I'd ask that you continue to uh, remember Dockery Bird and... Uh, of course, we've got the list of bereaved families on there. Keep them in your prayers as they go through a difficult time having lost loved ones. And uh, Albert um, has asked that we uh, remember Robin in prayer. Robin has, uh, she's been having some, uh, I don't know, I'll just say some health issues. And uh, they, they don't know exactly what's causing it. Um, I think she went today to, have, to, to try and have some of that looked at. And Miss um, Carol, I'm glad Miss Carol's here. Uh, but Miss Carroll's also been having some health issues and, and even had a car accident uh, last week as well. And I wasn't aware of that until Monday, I think. Uh, maybe Sunday. Somebody told me. Um, is, that, is that Blue Ride out there, your replacement car? Okay, it looks real hip. I pulled it and I said, who is that? Um, but anyway, we're... I think I'm from Okay. Okay. Well, we're glad you didn't get hurt. And uh, we hope you continue to get better. Um, what other prayer requests would you guys like to mention before the church today? Miss Jeannie?
Is that something that just happened all at once? Okay. praying for him as he goes into surgery and hope he has good success and a quick recovery. Any others? All right, well, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Um, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you now, and uh, Lord, first and foremost, we give you thanks for who you are. And uh, Lord, we just want to thank you for Christ Jesus, uh, Lord, for the sacrifice that he made for us, and we pray, Lord, that it would stand at the center of all that we are, all that we say, and all that we do. Uh, God, we do come to you tonight, Lord, as a local body of believers, and uh, Lord, we just uh, lift up our hands, Lord, asking for your blessing upon these prayer requests that we've mentioned. And Lord, there are many uh, unspoken, those that have not been mentioned for personal reasons, and God, we just pray that for each and every single one of these, we pray, Lord, that your presence be felt. We pray, God, that many would be comforted. Lord, we pray for healing where it might be your will. Uh, Lord, no matter what people are going through, we pray that in all these things you would draw them nearer to yourself, and uh, God, that you would continue to conform us into the image of your Son and to prepare us for, for real life, the life after this one. We do ask, God, that as we go through this life and we face the many battles and uh, we deal with many trials and tribulations, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would prepare us for the things that we face. Uh, God, that you would help us to give you glory in all things. We pray, God, that you would use our, our local church, uh, Lord, that we would be a conduit in, into this world that is lost and, Lord, continually turning away from you. And, uh, Lord, that we would be able to see the good work that you're doing here. And, Lord, know that uh, we want to be used for your kingdom work. Uh, we want to see souls saved. We want to see people comforted. And, uh, Lord, we want to see our fellowship grow, not for our sakes, but for your glory and that we might make much of Christ. We ask, God, that you'd be with us tonight. Uh, Lord, that we have set this time apart that we might study your word. And we pray, God, that uh, it would find good soil in our hearts and that you would use it in our lives as you see fit. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we're going to continue in Joshua. And uh, we have been covering... The crossing, well, the episode of the crossing of Jordan, and today is the day where um, we actually deal with the crossing over. And I've actually titled this uh, this lesson "Breaking Through." And I've read this several times, and there, there's so, I get something new out of it every single time I read it. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to be, uh, we'll really stick with the text. And I want, I want to point out before we really get into this, that this passage, while it concerns Joshua's leadership and it concerns the people of Israel, it is a passage about the Almighty and the everlasting God. The same God um, in Joshua's day it is, is in our day. He's always the same. He never changes. And I hope that as we read this that you'll keep in mind that this is a historical narrative. I think sometimes when we grow up with Sunday school books, with illustrations and things like that, we sort of forget that these are real characters. This is a real story. And so I'm going to try to highlight um, the historical context as we go through this passage. 
And um, we want to have a Christological approach even as we study the New Testament. And before you say Jesus Christ is not in that passage, I would just say hold up and let me show him to you because the entirety of the Bible is about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And before we read this passage, let me remind you that Joshua, the theme is about victorious Christian living. And so when we think of crossing over Jordan, we should think about living a victorious life in Jesus Christ. Not thinking about crossing over Jordan as dying and go to heaven, as the song says. And uh, I want to remind you that victorious Christian living is nothing short of miraculous. And we see the miracle. We've got a miracle in the text today. Um, and God has performed many miracles, some documented in his, in his word, others not so much. And sometimes, and by the way, I'm one of those people, I think that God does still do miracles in our lives today. And I believe that most of the time they are spiritual miracles, but I do believe in healing miracles. I don't believe in healing people. I believe in a healing God. Um, but I also believe uh, that God is still at work doing miracles today and that we can take the lessons in this passage and we can apply them to life today. But I want to remind you um, that this is about God. And just as Israel's deliverance was a work of God... I want to remind you that it started with God's plan of election as he revealed it to Abram and that he chose Isaac, the child of promise, not Ishmael, but the supernatural child according to God's plan, that Moses' life was perfectly preserved and guided by the very hand of God so that he would, be, he would reveal himself to him in a burning bush and make him the deliverer of Israel that he would call him and send him, and that he would show his power through the man Moses, but it's God's power, as he demonstrated the plagues of Egypt, these great, terrible, and miraculous signs of God, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the law, the manna in the wilderness, the provision of water, the changing of bitter water to good or to sweet, and Israel being guided by the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And I believe that as we look at the Old Testament, we should be reminded that God is the author of salvation then and in our lives today. I want to remind you that Israel's job was to walk, to go when God said go, or to come when he said come, and to cross over. And today we see that their part again today is to walk. And sometimes Christian living is about walking. It's about taking the next step in life that God has for us. And the more you trust God and the more that you have trusted God and seen Him work in your life, the easier it gets to walk with the Lord. Please turn your attention to Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. And we are actually going to finish chapter 3. It's not that many verses. And then next week we will be, well not next week, uh, but the week after we'll be talking about um, setting up memorials. Um, it says, beginning in verse 7, again, Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan." And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you 
the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people... And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And so there we have the account of the passing over of the Jordan, and it is nothing less than supernatural. And so I want to remind you that leading up to this point, Israel had been through it. They had sent in the 12 spies. They had failed. Uh, They got what they asked for. They said, we don't want to go into the land. So God said, so be it. You wanted to die in the wilderness. You can have that. I'll give it to the next generation. And when the next generation comes, and by the way, this was all according to God's plan. If you count the years of his prophecy, it happened exactly. He knew exactly the timing. But I want to remind you that God encouraged Joshua. Joshua encouraged the captains of the people. And they went and encouraged the people, and then the people encouraged Joshua. And so we had all of this Christian encouragement. By the way, that's a lesson for us today. I think if we encouraged each other the way that they did, uh, our faith would be a lot stronger. We'd have a lot less to fear, and we'd all have a lot better attitudes. But um, it was a, I'll say, a spirit of encouragement that was upon the people, which is different than the spirit of fear. And, of course, this time, the two spies were sent in instead of the twelve, and uh, this is where we encountered the episode of uh, Rahab the harlot, and we encountered Rahab's faith, and we saw what an example it was of an outsider believing in the word of the Lord. And uh, then last week we saw that the people sometimes must be still and wait upon the Lord, but when it's time to go, according to God's timing, we must go, and we saw that we follow the presence of the Lord. And again, I'm gonna, I can't say it without offering a caveat because you can't actually outrun God But the idea being, don't try to get ahead of God. Remember who is leading who. And uh, don't forget that while this is Israel's history, we as Christians, we claim it as our own. So it is also our history. And I want to point out first here that God is sovereign over the miraculous. Now I'm going to say something. um, And if you go dig around in the Bible, and maybe you'll find some way to dispute this. But the only real miracles that are done are done by God. Now you might be thinking, well, when when Moses showed his power to Pharaoh, he had some magicians and they could do some of the same things. I can't prove this just from the text, but I happen to believe what you were seeing was trickery. 
not real miraculous power. Just like we have magicians today that do things that I can't explain. I don't know how these people levitate, but there's a wire or a rod or something somewhere. I believe that the truly supernatural only happens by God alone. And in fact, in the, uh, in the end times when the Antichrist comes in all power and it says he's empowered by Satan, I believe even all of that is a forgery and a fake. That the supernatural is only the Lord's. Now, this miraculous that we see, it is driven, or it starts, I will say, with the very Word of God. That is also a lesson for a bunch of Southern Baptists today. Um, it says here that it is the words, and Joshua comes and says, Hear the words of the Lord your God. And I want to remind you that one of the Psalms says, I have magnified my word above my name. And how important the very word of God is. Uh, it is specific. And by the way, God chooses how we worship him, when we worship him, why we worship him. And it is, it is completely his prerogative. Now, there are many people today, by the way, could you imagine here in Joshua's day, if he said, God said we could do it such and such way, but we're going to do it a different way. What do you think the results would have been? It would have been a disaster. And the same thing is true in a Christian life today when you say, well, God, he, he dictates that we do things this way, but I want to do it my way. And there are entire denominations that say, well, we want to worship God, but we want to do it this way. And they dream up some foreign way. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament about the two priests that brought strange fire to the altar of God? What were their names? Is it Nadab and Abihu? And so God, according to his purpose and his plan, he doesn't explain exactly why, and he doesn't have to because he's God. But he wanted one specific fire to be brought to the altar of God, and that fire alone, he said, no strange fire should come. And when two priests took it upon themselves to bring strange fire, to bring a type of worship that God had not condoned, God killed them for that. It is a very serious crime to choose to worship God in a way other than what he mandates. Another example of that would be the story of Uzzah. And Uzzah, you might remember, he is the one that um, when the ark, we're talking about the ark today, when the ark of the covenant was being carried and they stumbled such that it would fall and Uzzah put his hands upon it to keep it from falling, he broke the law of God in doing so for no man was supposed to touch it and God struck him dead. And we can sit here and we can say, well, God was a little hard on us if we, if we want to, but he broke God's law. In fact, they were already breaking God's law because they were not carrying it in the way that God had commanded. But nevertheless, without getting into that, just let me say this. When God commands, it behooves us to obey. And praise God, they had a great leader that when God spoke, thus saith the Lord, their leader, Joshua, came and said, this is what God says, and he didn't change a word. He gave it to him exactly the way that God did. And by the way, I want to also point out here that in God's sovereignty over the miraculous, that God gives assurances. And this is important to the Christian today. I will admit to you that the way that, that God interacts in the world that we live in today is different than it was in this day. Any of you guys ever crossed a river and it stood up in a heap? I've never experienced that. Ever walked through a, a sea and God parted it for you? Me neither. I haven't seen those things. But I used to think, man, the people in Bible times, they had it easy because God was so uh, active in a visible way. But the older I've gotten and the more I've come to know the Lord, I realize that we have the advantage. 
because we have the very Holy Spirit of God that testifies the truth of these things, and it's almost like we can see them happening. Now, there, this is thousands of years ago, but I'm going to tell you what, I might as well have been there. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some more examples of that in a minute. But he says to them, he says, this is how you should know that God is among you. And by the way, the thing that he really points to here is that God keeps his word. Specifically, he said, this is how you know that the presence of the Lord is with you when the priests take the Ark of the Covenant and they go down there and they stand in the water. This is what's going to happen, and then it happens. In other words, God is faithful. God keeps his word. Isn't that nice? In a world full of people that don't keep their words, we have a God that does keep his word. And so this is how you know that God is among you. The same thing is true for Christians today. And we can trust that what God says is true. And he has proven himself throughout, the gener- throughout all time. And he continues to prove himself. And the very words of Jesus are true. And they are coming true. And you can trust that when Jesus says, anyone who comes to me will never hunger and never thirst, and all who believe in me will have everlasting life, you can trust that that is true. Just as the priest stood in the brink of the Jordan and the water stopped, so it is just as certain that you will have eternal life. Now I want to point something out about the presence of God. And I know we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, but I want to dwell on it in a little more detail. This is speaking of the Ark of the Covenant. And I think I may have shared with you guys uh, that a coworker of mine, he was telling me that he had failed his family. And by the way, I'm not sure he's wrong. I, I hate to say it, but he said that his kid was watching Indiana Jones and they're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. He came to him and he, his, his son said, what is the Ark of the Covenant? And he thought, oh my goodness, how can my... My son not know that. And so he told him, he said, well, it was a box. It was, a, it was the meeting place of God with his people, but it was a box. It was, and by the way, it was a box made of wood, of acacia wood, and it's overlaid with gold. And it has uh, two likenesses of cherubim on the top of it. And it says that their wings are stretched out and the angels are looking in on the lid of the box. And in the middle there is the mercy seat on the lid. And under the lid, inside the box, there are three things. And if you remember, the three things are... The Ten Commandments, the, the stone tablets. By the way, my coworker, he said, it contains the Ten Commandments. And you know what his son said? What are the Ten Commandments? Isn't that terrible? We have a great responsibility, parents and grandparents. But not only did it contain the Ten Commandments, but it also contained a pot of manna. And by the way, uh, do you remember that God gave manna every day uh, that the people would have something to eat except... The day before the Sabbath, he gave twice as much, and they could gather enough that they didn't have to gather on the Sabbath. In fact, they were forbidden from gathering on the Sabbath. And manna went bad every day, except for in that case. God supernaturally preserved it. Now, I don't know if the Ark of the Covenant is still out there or not, but if it is, it's got a pot of manna in it, and the manna ain't gone bad. And uh, the other thing that's in there is the budding rod of Aaron. Of course, this miraculous sign. And I just want to point out to you that... Here, as they crossed over Jordan, the Ark of the Covenant is the very presence of God, the meeting place between God and the people, leading Israel, going before Israel as they go into the Promised Land. And this pictures Jesus Christ doing this same work for us today. In fact, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is, is special for all of those reasons, but 
The Ten Commandments reflects the nature and character of God, indeed of Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's only one person that has ever lived that can say that they kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. And that man's name is Jesus. And when we think about the, the budding rod of Aaron, maybe you've had an old walking stick before. Uh, usually you'd make it out of dead wood, but if you didn't, it'd be dead wood pretty quick. And it would dry, and there'd be no sap in it, and you know that a piece of dead wood has no life in it. It's dead. And so it can't bud. It cannot sprout. It's dead. And that's to remind us, I believe, that Jesus Christ is the author of life. And that just as that piece of wood was dead and there was no life in it, as we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, just like that rod budded, we have been made alive together in Christ Jesus. And of course, the jar of manna reminds us of what Jesus said when he said, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But the more important part about the Ark of the Covenant that reminds us of Jesus and that pictures Jesus is the mercy seat. It, it, it is, by the way, the mercy seat, it's, it's not a seat per se. It's the empty space on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant between those two cherubim. And those two cherubim are faced inward they're not looking outward where they would see nothing but the sins of all of mankind, a rebellious people created in the image of God and all falling short of His glory every day. But they're looking inward on the place where God meets with man. And it's the same place where once a year the priest would take the blood of the Lamb and on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and the blood would atone for the sins of the people. And the way that the people looked at the Ark of the Covenant is the way that we're supposed to look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The work that he did at Calvary was the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat, the place where God meets with man, where he makes himself known. It's the place where we meet with him. And uh, when I thought about this, um, in fact, I was reminded that in one of the Gospels it it tells that Mary was without the tomb and it says that two angels were inside the tomb and that one was at the head of where Jesus had been and the other was at the foot. And I remembered those two cherubim on the mercy seat. But it reminded me of a song and it's a very simple uh, little Christian song. I'm, I think the guy that sings its name is Tomlin. Um, but it says this, and this reminded me, this made me think directly of Joshua and the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God going before the people. He says, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. Now, it may be very simple. And I read all the lyrics of that, and I would encourage you to do it and go listen to it. Won't mean anything if it's not personal. And it's amazing that I am one of how many people are on earth these days? About 8 billion and in the history of all humanity, untold billions. And yet I can feel so special to the Almighty, to the Creator and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I hope you feel exactly the same way. Now I want to point out that God did this. God's victory is complete. In fact, uh, He says here, He speaks of um, 
the victory that will happen as if it's happened almost. He says, he reminds them that he will, not, he will without fail drive out from before you. By the way, Bob Tedder pointed out that this was a, a word I made up. Instead of saying the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, I collectively called them the Badites. Um, but these are the enemies of God. And the one thing that all of these groups have in common is that none of them worship the one true living God. They were all an idolatrous and very sinful people. And so God had removed them from their place. He had taken uh, what was theirs and given it to another. That was his plan here. And so uh, in, in God leading them and his presence going before them, I, I missed something here. Did y'all notice that God mistimed... I'm, I'm saying that facetiously. He mistimed the crossing of the Jordan. He waited until it was harvest season. And it tells us here, and I wouldn't have known this without the parentheses, the river's swollen. It's up out of its banks. It's the time of year when it floods. Now look, if I was planning a miracle, I'd wait until it got real small. It was a drought year. But God didn't do that. I've, I've once said, uh, maybe I've said this more than once, that sometimes God likes to show off. It's, oh, God's not just a show off. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I see a lot of instances where God shows off, and I've seen it in my own life. And here in this case, he waits until the most absurd time to come in and to give this victory. And I don't know if I uh, had a picture in my mind of this or if, uh, if I had seen it in one of these Sunday school books, but I had always pictured Israel walking across in a big heap of water as the river kept flowing but standing up in a heap I always pictured it being kind of right there. <clears throat> but uh, if you look at the text here, it gives us a little bit more detail. And uh, that brings us to our second point, and that's that you don't always see the miracle. Now, what you won't know if you don't look, if you don't look this up on a map, it says, let me see if I can find um, the reference to the geography. Well, he says, it's, here it is. It's in verse 16. The waters coming down from above stood, up, stood and rose up in a heap very far away. And then it says, Adam, I'm sure that's pronounced Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. Well, we know that Israel is crossing um, right across from Jericho. Is it Jericho? And so I looked at the map. I found Jericho. Now look, maybe there's a little margin in there. And I traced it back to where the city of Adam is. It's at least 15 miles away. It might be 20 miles away. It's a long way away. Now, if you go to this scene in your mind, and by the way, I'm, I, want, I want you to think up things in your life, things that you're waiting on, because the priest went down there carrying the ark, and the river is swollen, it is impassable, it is impossible to cross. Matter of fact, I, I, don't, I don't know much about the Jordan, and I know things change over time, and it may have been even different then. What I do know is it was flood stage out of its banks, and I've tried to cross little trout streams in the Appalachians when we've just had a good rain, and when the water is flowing swift, I have, I have walked in water that was knee-deep, knee-deep, and I couldn't cross it. Because it was so swift that when you stepped into it, the water would be shooting up your leg with all the force. And it could just take your legs right out from under you. Impossible 
to cross. In fact, I was reminded of um, a little scene from uh, one of the Lord of the Rings where the guys, they, they have an impossible task in front of them and they go to recruit the help of this other army. I won't get into all the details, but they go in and they read an inscription and it says, the way is shut. The dead have made it, the dead keep it, and the way is shut until the time comes. And I thought that's very fitting for crossing over Jordan. The way was shut until the time comes. And when the time comes, the way is open. Uh, the same being true in Tolkien's great story there. But nevertheless, um, God performs this miracle. And if you picture this rightly, it's happening 15 or 20 miles upstream. So they go out there and they stand in the water with the Ark of the Covenant and they wait. They wait. But you know, there's something very interesting about that. The first steps that they took were truly steps of faith. God didn't stop the water, dry it out, and then send them through. He sent them into the water. Now look, it was just their feet. They didn't have to get neck deep. They didn't have to get swept away. But he sent them in taking steps of faith first, and then he stopped the water way up there. And so I imagine that there was some waiting that took place. But little by little, God dried up the bed of Jordan and gave a complete victory. Now, I think that there's some application in the fact that it was so far away and that they didn't get to see the heap of water. Now, there were a whole lot of them. They may have crossed for long enough. I mean, you're talking about a million people, a million plus. Um, the estimates vary, but old people, young people, families, huge families. And guess what? They didn't have to hurry. God was in control. God had stopped the river, and God makes the way. In fact, I, I think we ought to remember that God's a way maker. He's the one that makes the way. He's the one that had, for Israel, made a way out of Egypt. Uh, he made a way when there was no food. He made a way when there was no water. He made a way when the water was bitter. He made a way when the people fell into idolatry against him. He made a way when the people murdered, murmured against him. It's always God doing the work, always God who makes the way. And even in our lives, when it's impossible, it's God that makes the way. Now look, sometimes, sometimes we have to do stuff, just like they had to walk into the water. Sometimes we have to take steps of faith. Um, and sometimes we have to trust other people, doctors. That's the, the easy one to point to. But it's always God that makes the way. Now, man, I could really dwell on that. The heap of water was way upstream. You couldn't see it. I can't help but wonder. By the way, let me just mention something. In the world of anti-supernaturalism, there are many people that will explain that with unsupernatural means. And they'll say, well, there have been a number of earthquakes throughout history that have happened in the Jordan Valley. And when the landslides fell, it stopped up the water. And it's possible that something like that happened then. And that, doesn't, that does not explain it. That is not the miraculous. That would, God stood it in a heap. That's breaking the laws, his laws, so he can do it. The laws of physics so that his people can pass through, so that people would tell of the work that he did for generations to come. Because what would people say if it was a, an earthquake? Oh, it just happened. It was just good luck. And people have always tried to explain away the supernatural. People say, oh, it was just a certain wind. It was just the perfect wind that parted 
the Red Sea. People say it wasn't really a global flood that happened back in Genesis. It was a little local flood, and it, it covered everything they could see, so they thought it was the whole world. And these are the same people that say Jesus didn't really die on the cross and rise from the grave. He looked like he died on the cross. He swooned, and so people saw him again. My Bible says some absurd things, people. Can I tell you how ridiculous uh, some of the things that, that, that my Bible says? It says that the sea was parted. It says that the river stood in a heap. It said that an axe head made of iron floated. It says that a donkey talked. Now look, you either have to be crazy to believe those things or know the Almighty. One or the other. And my Bible says that one man lived perfectly and that he was crucified on a tree and that he was placed three days in a grave and that he rose again. You cannot believe that unless you have been touched by the very Spirit of God. Um, let me look at this. I've got one more point and then I'll hush. The proper, proper worship... I made a mistake Sunday. I made some comment about missing the point. And I did miss my point. And several people, oh, preacher, I just wanted to call and tell you, I wasn't looking for any pity. Let me just say something. I have tried a few times to preach on the holiness of God. And on Sunday, if there was something that I wanted you to get and something that I wanted you to chase after, it's the holiness of God. And every single time I have ever spoken on the holiness of God, I have left feeling like I have struck out and completely missed. And if God gives me 50 years to preach, and if every day of my life I say, I want to get better at preaching on the holiness of God, and I get to preach on it the day I die, I'm going to feel like I missed. You know why? Because there's a big gap between a mortal man and a thrice holy, perfect God. Now today, I want to leave you with the point that proper worship means chasing the holiness of God. This wasn't lost on Israel. They had suffered the consequences of disobeying him. They had seen an entire generation miss out. They had seen his miraculous hand at work. And the centerpiece of this passage is God himself. Let me point a few things out. Now, he might have said, oh, Joshua, today I'll begin to exalt you. But he didn't say, for your sake. He says, so that they will know that as I was with Moses, I will be with you. It was about God all along. And don't ever sit in a church service or watch a service on TV where they make it all about the preacher. And certainly don't let a preacher make it all about the preacher. It's always all about God. He says, listen to, not the words of Joshua, listen to the words of the Lord your God. And he says, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you. I like down in verse 13, he says, when the, when the priests who are bearing the ark of the Lord, comma, and then he says, the Lord of all the earth. Now look, they're getting ready to go into enemy territory where they don't worship the Lord of all the earth, where they worship every false God that you could dream up. And Joshua's reminding them, he's their God too, even if they don't worship him as such. But the call of Israel is to chase after the holiness of God. In fact, I will remind you that the Bible speaks of the holiness of God more than almost any other subject that it touches. 
This is so important in the life of Israel, and it's so important in the life of New Testament Christians today. Um, the, his foundation for it and his revelation is still his word. Uh, the priests being first and the ark being first is because, let me hurt some feelings here, nobody can have victorious Christian living on their own. Nobody. It must be through the cross. It must be by Christ alone. And the world would be a lot better place if all the tough people in the world, men and women alike, that think that they can do it all on their own, would say, I need Jesus. God is so serious and so specific in his exact protocol that is given. And by the way, that is one of the ways that we know that he can be trusted. You know, the gods that we read about, the lowercase g gods of the world, um, it's hard to know what they're thinking. They do as they please. Uh, that you, cannot, you cannot know their character because it is changing. But the Christian God, the God of the Old Testament and the New, is knowable. He is to be trusted. He is to be obeyed. And this passage, again, I want to remind you, points us to Jesus. Now, I don't know what the next... You know, when you talk about victorious Christian living, it's broad. And the, the easy example, when I think about the Gergeshites and the Jebusites, they represent sin. They represent idolatry. And my Bible says that God will bring us to completion. He will perfect that work which he has started in us. He will drive out the sin. He will sit like one at a refiner's fire. And he will purify the gold and scoop away the dross. He will be like one who washes with fuller soap and will wash us white as snow. He will go before us. He will win the victory. And all we got to do is walk. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this encouragement. And we thank you, Lord, for the many godly men that have come before us. Uh, those like Joshua who have a testimony of wholly following the Lord. I pray, God, that you would raise up such men in our generation. We pray, God, that uh, many hearts would be turned back towards you, that we would be a nation that chases after you. And, uh, Lord, help us to all be a type of people that would walk down and stand in the Jordan, trusting you, Lord, for the things that you have promised us, knowing that you always keep your word, knowing that even when we are not, you are perfectly faithful. Lord, we pray that you would shepherd our church, that, Lord, you would keep us and direct us. And, Lord, that you would use us, Lord, against our very own will, that you might get glory for yourself and make famous Jesus Christ here on this earth and in our community. We ask it in his name. Amen.